All right, guys. Well, this week, our title for this, the lesson is The Almighty is Never AWOL. Um, and you may think this is going to be somewhat repetitive, and maybe it is. Last week, we talked about that uh, seeing the all-seeing God, you know, the God who sees everything. How do we see him? And this week, it's really more about recognizing that he's always there, um, just that calm assurance, as I pray, that should come over us with the realization that God is always with us. He's never bailed on us. And yet many of us sometimes feel because of circumstances that God has somehow left the building. You know, he's angry, he's upset, he's busy, he's preoccupied somewhere else, and God's not a part of our lives. And it's usually just based on circumstances because we look around and go, how could God be in the midst of this? But the main lesson for this morning from the book of Esther, especially chapter 9, is the fact that God is always there. He never leaves us. The definition this morning for providence is from R. Kent Hughes. And he says this, the sweet doctrine of God's providence is this. God sovereignly works in and through the everyday non-miraculous events of life to affect his will. Such a God, of course, is great beyond our imaginings because he maintains all of life involves himself in all events and directs all things to their appointed end while rarely interrupting the natural order of life. He is far greater than our imaginings because he arranges all of life to suit and affect his providence. This makes all of life a miracle. Do you see that use of all uh, over and over again? Uh, and I think he's exactly right that if you have this attitude about God and this understanding of God's providence, it does make all of life a miracle. It's not just the extravagant things of life. It's the everyday affairs of life are a miracle that God's involved, that he is working his providential plan, his sovereign plan, his will out in my life and in your life in all these different ways. And, and I love what he says. He goes, um, rarely interrupting the natural order of life. See, sometimes what we want God, it, it, we want him to just come in and just like blow our doors off. And make it so obvious that that's God, like burning bush experiences uh, Ted preached on this last Sunday. But that's not how God normally works in my life. I don't think I've ever had a burning bush experience. Well, I know I haven't had a burning bush experience, but I've never seen God in those terms in my life. And yet I know he's involved in my life every day in so many ways. And he's never, he has never and will never leave me or forsake me. He's always present. Isaiah 57, 15, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those who, with repentant hearts. So you have this kind of interesting juxtaposition of the transcendence of God, high and holy, living in a place where we can't go at this point, and yet he's also the imminent God. He's the close God. He's the God who's with those who are contrite and humble and who have repentant hearts. So this idea that God is holy and transcendent and above us and better than us and greater than us is true, but the amazing thing about that is that he chooses to spend time with us and be a part of us and insert himself into our lives. And again, in the story of Esther, and especially as we go into chapter 9, this idea that he has inserted himself into the lives of these people who really don't deserve it. 
and he is intimately involved in their lives, in every aspect of their lives, should blow us away and should also encourage us that, that that's true of us as well. So let's read chapter 9. It's a little bit longer than the other ones, but it's worth the read. And if you want to read from the notebook, it's page uh, 111. And so this is kind of bringing the story to a close. Next week, chapter 10 is very short because it's just this kind of the synopsis, the closing statement. But chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, and that date ought to still kind of ring in your ears because it's the day we've been waiting for. It's the day the Jews have been dreading because it's the day that by lot Haman chose in his edict to kill all the Jews. So it says, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, now catch these next three words, the reverse occurred. So the day comes, the day that Haman had written in, in paper and sealed with the king's ring, sent to all 127 provinces, the day finally comes and the reverse happens. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. Now, why were they able to do that? Because of the edict that Mordecai and Esther sent out, which stood in direct opposition to the edict of Haman. So you had, like we said last week, two opposing edicts, equal in power, equal in weight, have the king's signature, but when it came to the day and it finally arrives, the Jews gathered in their cities and they overwhelmed them. No one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. This is the same Mordecai that had been wearing sackcloth and ashes and sitting outside the king's gate mourning the coming destruction of his own people, and now everybody's in fear of him. And he's got all of the officials of the, the land basically siding with him. Verse 4, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed, now this is going to be fun, Parshanadatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Aridai and Vasatha. Now, they just need to be killed because their names are hard to pronounce. <laughs> the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha. So remember, these are the sons that Haman bragged about when he first went in and gathered his wife and buddies and was bragging about himself and he bragged about all his sons. Well, they're all killed. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And that, that phrase is going to get repeated again. So the Jews, in defending themselves, kill 500 men, but take none of their plunder. We don't want your plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, honey, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. 
what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? So he's like, man, just here in the citadel, kind of the little capital, there's 500 men dead. What, what's happened in all the other provinces? 127 of them. Then he says, now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Notice he left something out, out that he has said several times before. What has he left out? Up to half of my kingdom. I think at this point, he's a little leery of offering her that. He just says, what, what, what do you want? What can be granted you? What's your further request? And it shall be fulfilled. And she says, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. She's asking for an extension. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now you can read this little section here and begin to think, man, this is one vindictive woman. I mean, they're already dead, and she wants to basically put them on spikes and, and put them on display. And she wants an extra day to kill more people. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged on spikes. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day making that a day of feasting and gladness. So basically what's happening is out in the rural areas outside of Susa they only killed on the 13th day, the original day, and they celebrated on the next day. Esther got a second day to kill people in, in the citadel, and so they celebrated on the next day. So you end up with basically what's going to be a two-day holiday, which we would all love. So, verse 17, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, on the 14th day they rested and made the day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Keep that little line in mind. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush them and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim. After the term pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that included all the Persians who, who took sides with them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at that time appointed every year. 
that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fail, fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of the Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So, what do you got? Well, you've got two edicts. The day arrives, you had the majority of the people in Persia against the people of Israel who were in the minority, and yet which side wins? Well, the Jews win. And they win decisively. They kill 500 men in Susa on one day, 300 the next day. They kill 75,000 out in the provinces, and God turns the tables. God brings victory. And so we see that on the very day, the day that had been chosen by Lot, and as we said when we studied that, I believe, as the Scriptures teach, that even the Lot is determined by God. And the day that was picked is a day that God determined. And when the day finally arrived, everything changes. The reverse occurred. Now, what that should tell you and I, this is a story. I think it's a true story, a real story. It happened in real life. It's historical, not mythical. And it's easy to read this story and many stories like it in the scriptures and just go, well, that's cool. How exciting for them. But what about your story? What about my story? Do we believe that God is working these same kinds of stories in our lives? Um, Is he working behind the scenes and is he going to bring the reverse of what we fear. I met with a guy this, uh, this week who uh, is going through some pretty significant issues in his life financially, uh, legally, um, and justifiably he's in kind of a panic. You know, what am I going to do? Um, and he's, whether he realizes it or not, and he does realize it now because I pointed it out to him, he's playing the what-if game which we all play. What if this happens? Well, what if that happens? Well, if that happens, then this happens. And you know, we start seeing the dominoes start to fall and we start playing the what if game. And the chances are none of it's going to happen, but we've already gone all the way down the road to the worst case scenario. And we don't stop and think God's here, God's aware, God's at work. And you know what? In God's grand scheme, the reverse could occur. I'm not guaranteeing that it will, but we don't even sometimes think it could. But that's what this story ought to teach you, is that God is working in ways that we can't see. And so on the very day they were supposed to be killed, the reverse occurred. And God, and you can't say anything other than God made this happen. It wasn't Esther. It wasn't her beauty. It wasn't her wisdom. It was, you know, God used those things, but it was God who made this happen. God brought the reverse about. And it was incredibly miraculous. 
And I think it got the attention of everyone. Because you even see in the story what happened. When the day came and the Jews began to defend themselves, you had all of the leadership in Persia going, I'm with the Jews. I'm, I'm going with them. They may be in the minority, but there's something about them that I, I think I'm safer with them than I am with Persia. And then you had Persians who were basically saying, I'm actually a Jew. You had mass conversions. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew now. When did you become a Jew? Today. Um, I, it's safer to be a Jew today. Pretty amazing. That's a miracle. And, and the tables get turned. And, and we don't, again, we read the story and we think that's, a, that's an incredible story. What an, what an interesting story. But do we believe that God still works in these same ways in my life and in your life? You see over and over again in this passage, and we read it, that God gives them mastery over their enemies. And we live in a culture right now where we feel like the enemy has mastery over us, that the church is, you know, under attack and it's, it's being beaten down. And that is so true, but it doesn't mean we're defeated. We may be demoralized, but we're not defeated because we know how the story ends, right? We, we know our team wins. And the truth is, we should be so excited about the future and what God has in store that those around us want to convert to us and say, I want to be one of you because your team wins. But see, when we're walking around going, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, we could, we could all be dead by next week. You know, we're going to lose our tax-exempt status and people are going to vacate the church in droves and the churches are going to get smaller and, it, and it's going to be horrible and we're going to be under persecution and attack. Does anybody want to join that team? Does anybody want to, you know, come, oh man, sign me up. I want to be one of you. But if you're excited about the future and you say, you know, yeah, the world's in bad shape and, you know, the enemy's strong and he's doing all kinds of things. You know, my God's stronger. And I know how the story ends, and we win in the end, and guess what? This is how it all shapes out, and I have confidence, and I'm excited. That becomes attractive, and that reverses things. Look at what it says. No one could stand against them. The fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. The governors and royal agents also helped the Jews. The fear of Mordecai had fallen on them over and over again. You see the change of circumstances that God brought about. Now, did Esther and Mordecai expect any of this? I don't think so. I don't think they really thought it was going to turn out this way. Much like we don't think it's all, all going to turn out well. And yet, as Christians, and because we do have the Bible, and we do know how the story ends, and we have plenty of stories like Esther and Joseph and Daniel and others that we can read about and go, God seems to always work things out to his glory and our good. Why can't we expect God to do what only God can do? Doesn't mean life's going to be easy. Doesn't mean the enemy's not going to win some battles along the way. But we know that our team wins. Our side wins. And that should bring us confidence because just like in the story of Esther, God is there and he's never left them. He's never bailed on them at any point along the way. It says the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. See, I think that's really a fear of God. 
it's not so much that they feared the Israelites as much as they probably feared the God of the Israelites. Because even the Persians were spiritual people. They had gods and they believed in gods and they believed that the Israelite God was bigger and badder than their God or gods. But sometimes as believers, we don't think our God's that big or significant. We don't think he's that strong. We don't believe he can come through and we don't have the confidence that we should have. Sometimes we don't even believe he's there, that he's with us and around us and cares about us. And it also says the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Well, who put Mordecai where he was? God. Who elevated Mordecai? God. And, and it's easy to put emphasis on, and what we're going to see is the Jews, as we finish this chapter, the Jews, even today, put more emphasis on Mordecai and Esther than they do God in their celebration of Purim. They, they think this is really a story about two people, two cousins, a man and a woman, who saved the people of Israel, and they lose sight of the fact, no, it was the God of Mordecai and Esther that saved the people of Israel. The fear of Mordecai falls on them, so the people are fearful, the, the Persians are fearful. And I love this from Psalm 105, it says, The Lord brought his people out of Egypt, loaded with silver and gold, and not one among the tribes of Israel even stumbled. Egypt was glad when they were gone, for they feared them greatly. Now, why did the Egyptians fear the Israelites, who were basically slaves? Because of what God had done to the Egyptians on behalf of the Israelites. They feared them, but they really feared God because who brought the plagues? God. Who killed the firstborn? God. Who delivered them? God. And, and that's really the message that we need to get from this is that what people should see in your life and my life is they should have a healthy fear of us and all of us because the God who's for us, the God who works on our behalf and who rescues us and who empowers us and who gives us the ability to have faith and hope, even in the midst of great difficulty. But see, our world doesn't fear us. I don't think. I don't think they fear the church because the church, to them, is weak and powerless and preoccupied with itself. And you, you've probably heard people say that the church is full of hypocrites, which it is, and the church is full of people who use Christianity as a crutch, which it is. But see, we shouldn't be using Christianity as a crutch. We should be using Christianity as a means to share what we believe about God and about man to the world around us. It's not a crutch. It's salvation. It's redemption. But see, they, just like the Israelites... The Israelites were feared by the Egyptians. The Israelites in Persia were feared by the Persians, and that was a God thing. And so the Jews get to do what? They get to kill. They get to destroy. They get to annihilate 75,000 people out in the provinces and 800 men in the citadel. Now, we can read that and go, man, that's vicious. That's, that's God basically condoning death. Well, go read the Old Testament. Yeah. But this is a case of what? Self-defense. This is a case of them just having the ability to defend themselves against people trying to kill them. Now, what it should tell you is if 
800 men in the citadel, which was a smaller area, had to be killed. Why were they killed? Because they were trying to kill the Jews. And 75,000 men were killed out in the provinces. provinces. What does that tell you? At least 75,000 men were trying to kill the Jews. I think there were more. But what happened to the others? They lost their enthusiasm. When you see 75,000 people killed for trying to kill the Jews, you probably go, I'm not going to, I thought I was going to do that, but I'm not going to do that. They gave up. They quit. They, because of the success of the Jews in defending themselves. But what's fascinating, there are three times it tells us they didn't take the plunder. Could have, legally, according to the edict, but they didn't. What was probably the greatest motivation for those in Persia to kill Jews? Plunder. They really didn't have a hatred for the Jews. They just saw that the Jews had stuff they wanted. Plunder was the motivation, most likely, for most of these people that were killed. But for the Jews, it wasn't plunder. It was just self-defense. It was to keep their families alive, their children alive. And it goes on and talks about killing of the Jews. That was the original plot to kill Jews. But see, God reversed it. God turned the tables. God changed the circumstances. And everything that Haman had originally plotted against the Jews got turned back on him. To the point of, as we saw two chapters ago, he got killed. He got spiked on the spike he had erected for Mordecai. But then his sons, all ten of his sons are killed. And Esther has them put on public display so that people could see. Now, why did she do that? I, I, I don't think it was a case of vindictiveness. It was a message of this is what happens when you mess with us. And I think it probably got some attention when you see the ten sons of Haman hanging on spikes, put through their bodies out on display. I think you probably changed your tune in terms of what you were going to do that day. You woke up that morning thinking, I'm going to go kill some Jews. Oh, look, there's Haman's ten sons on spikes. I don't think I'm going to do that today. I'm going to go mow the lawn. I'm going to go change the oil in my car. It worked. And the reason she extended it for a second day is that she knew there were more people who were not yet done and who needed to be dealt with. Now, did she get that from God? I believe so. But they finished the job. They protected themselves. And as a result of this, we see that a, a holiday is established. And, and, and this is kind of fascinating to me, that this holiday gets established called, called Purim. It says in chapter 9, Mordecai recorded these events, sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of the king, calling them to, them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting, with gladness, and with joy by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. Now, I don't know where he got this idea. Um, did he get it from God? He could have. Um, but it's just interesting that they established this feast to commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. What's missing from this, these verses? God. You don't see God mentioned. You don't see anything in the letter that he sent out recognizing the fact that it was God who did this. Now you say, well, it's inferred. 
I don't know that you ever want to just infer God. I think you want to be blatant that this was an act of God. This is something God had done. God had rescued them at a time when the Jews gained relief. And that relief was because of God, not because of Mordecai, not because of Esther. He's the one who made it possible. Now, what's interesting and that you have to think about when you study this passage is, why did God do this for them? Well, they're the Jews. Okay. God's chosen people, the apple of his eye. But, but we got to keep the context in mind here. Why would God do it for this particular group of Jews? And what we have to remember is, why were they there to begin with? And we've talked about this before. They were there originally because of what? The Jews had been disobedient to God back in Israel, back in Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms. They had been disobedient to God, and so God took Israel in the north and sent them into captivity in Assyria. And about 500 years later, he did the same thing to Judah, and they end up in Babylon. He sends tens of thousands of Jews into captivity as punishment for what? Their rebellion against him, their unfaithfulness. They end up in Babylon. Babylon later gets defeated by the Persians. And now this is where we are. And we know from historical context that God had made it possible through Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel to lead the Jews back to the promised land from where? Babylon and Persia. Under the leadership of King Artaxerxes and also King Cyrus, two kings of Babylon and Persia, that they allowed the people to go back. They even paid for their trip. They gave them money to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, but not everybody went. And Esther and Mordecai represent the Jews who stayed behind and didn't go. They, when given the chance, had chosen not to return. They stayed in Persia. Why? Well, convenience. It would have been a long trip. We don't know why they stayed other than the fact that they wanted to stay in Persia and didn't want to make the long journey back to Jerusalem to basically what was a disheveled, beaten down city with no king, no money, no power, no resources. They chose to stay. And I think some of this was driven by, I would rather stay in Persia than go back to something that doesn't look that attractive. But they did have the opportunity. God allowed them to go back. They chose not to. And if you go look at Ezra chapter 1, it says, This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. This is a predecessor to Ahasuerus. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem. How many? Any of you. Any of you who want to go back can to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So this king, King Cyrus of Persia, tells the Jews, you can go back, you're going to rebuild the temple, the temple of your God, I'm going to pay for it, and I'm going to tell all your Persian neighbors and all your Jewish neighbors to give you gold and silver for the journey. And yet some chose not to go. They stayed. 
And Mordecai and Esther are part of the group that stayed. They chose not to return. And what's amazing is God provided the means, the permission, the money, the resources to go back to their land, and they chose not to. And I think the absence, the lack of God's name is really a picture of, an indication of their spiritual state as a people. See, here's what I believe about the the book of Esther, and you may disagree with me, and that's perfectly fine. I think Esther, Mordecai, and all of their Jewish friends basically thought God was nowhere to be found. He was out of sight, out of mind. And so you have an entire book written about the people of God living in Persia where his name is never mentioned, and yet he's all throughout the book. From their perspective, he was AWOL. And if you think about it, just in their context of how they viewed God, the temple had been destroyed. They and their relatives had all been sent into captivity. Where did the presence of God dwell according to the Jews? In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat, just like it had in the tabernacle. So with the destruction of the temple, what happened to the presence of God in their mind? He's gone. Now, we're in Persia. Well, if he's not in the temple, he's certainly not here because we're thousands of miles away in a foreign pagan land, and in their minds, God was a wall. God was gone. Their city was destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. Their sacrificial system was destroyed, and they were in captivity for the most part. They were no longer living as slaves, but they were still captive. They were still living in a land And they really believed and acted like God isn't around. And so it's so easy for for them to see all that's happening as it's Mordecai, it's Esther. They saved us. They saved the day. But God, and this is so encouraging to me, God never left them alone. Have you ever walked away from God? Sure you have. You know, sometimes when we think God is distant, guess who moved? You. It wasn't God. You know, God's right next to you, but you have mentally, emotionally, and spiritually moved away from him. And yet, the psalmist says, you can go to the depths of the sea, you can't get away from God. You can go to the highest mountain, you can't get away from God. You you can do everything in your power to escape God, you can't get away from God. He's always there. But you're the one who's moved mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But God hadn't left them. He hadn't forgotten them. But they had forgotten God. And I think that's why it's so interesting. Even at the end of the story, chapter 9, when all the tables are turned and Mordecai's successful and rich and wealthy and Esther is wealthy and she's got all the lands and all the property and all the money of Haman and everything's turned and they have a celebration and they never mention the name of God in the letter to put this celebration into place. It's kind of like, you know, we, we have Thanksgiving, you know, but very few people thank God for anything. It's just Thanksgiving. It's a holiday. We celebrate Thanksgiving, but we really don't know what we're thankful for or who we should be thankful to as a nation. God's gotten conveniently left out, and I think that's what's happened here. I love Jeremiah 29, and this is Jeremiah writing about the people in captivity in Babylon. And listen to what he says. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This is prior to the story of Esther, but it still involves Jews who were in exile. And this is before their return. 
You know, they were going to be there for 70 years, and then God sent them back. Here's what God says. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, don't dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. What's God telling them? You're going into captivity. Marry, have kids, prosper, pray for the city in which you live. Which city? Babylon. They're captors. Because as they prosper, you prosper. Well, they eventually got beaten by who? The Persians, which tells you something about the prayer life probably of the Israelites. What were they supposed to do with the Persians? Same thing. Multiply, prosper, marry, plant, eat, have fun, pray for the, the city in which you live, the governor, the satraps, anybody in charge, pray for the king. That's what they were supposed to be doing. But inherent in all of that is this understanding that God is there. Then he goes on and he says, this is what the Lord says, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years. See, God was very specific. You're going to go into captivity. You're going to be there 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised and will bring you home again. That's what we talked about when we read King Cyrus sending them back. Seventy years were up. Time to go home. For I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you. Does this mean that God has to be searched for because he's gone, he's distant, he's hiding? No. It's, It's a picture of turn around, I'm right there. But you got to start looking for me. The inference is they're not looking for him. They're not seeking him. All you have to do is start to seek me and you will find me because guess what? I've never gone anywhere is essentially what God is saying. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. See, what God wanted to do was take them, punish them, send them into captivity for how long? 70 years. 70 years are up. He brings them home. And guess what? Many chose not to go. They chose to stay. And these these plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope were to return to the land I gave to your ancestors. You're not supposed to be in Babylon. You're there because of disobedience. Go home. I'll even get the king of, king of Persia to pay for it. Go home. But they didn't. They stayed. And Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews living in Persia represent those who chose not to go home, not to take God up after 70 years were over. And this is, this is really important. Freedom had been offered and they turned it down. Think about that. Freedom from captivity, and they turned it down. Now, I'm not trying to convey this or tie this into salvation because you can't lose your salvation. But as believers, God has offered you and I freedom in this life, freedom from fear, freedom from um, discontentment, freedom from all kinds of things, and yet we turn it down and we stay enmeshed and immersed in this. And that's exactly what the people had done. And yet God rescued them. Why would God do that? If I were God, and you're so fortunate that I'm not God, 
If I had been God, I'd have said, excuse my French, screw you. I gave you a chance to go back. You didn't go back. You want to stay here? Fine, stay here. I could care less. Guess what? Haman's coming, and Haman's going to kill all of you, and you deserve it. That's what I'd have done. But no, 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 no. See, that's not the God we worship. God rescued. Isaiah 48 says, Listen to me, O family of Jacob. You are called by the name of Israel and born into the family of Judah, for I know so well what traitors you are. This is God talking to the people of Israel. Pretty blunt. You have been rebels from birth, yet for my own sake and for the honor of my name, I will hold back my anger and not wipe you out. Why is God rescuing them? Not because of them, because of him, his honor, his name. I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. I will rescue you for my sake. Yes, for my own sake. Why is God doing all that he's done in chapter 9 and all of Esther for his sake? I will not let my reputation be tarnished, and I will not share my, my, what? my glory with idols. See, God was rescuing them, not because of them, but in spite of them. Same thing he had done for the Jews in Egypt. It wasn't because they were worshiping him. They were actually worshiping idols. Yet God was going to protect his name, and God was also going to keep his promise. It was for his sake, his name, his honor. Why does God do things in your life and in my life? Not because of us, but most of the time in spite of us. He does it for his own honor, his own glory. As you're busy tearing down his glory, he's trying to lift it up by doing great things in your life. And then we don't even recognize it. And we don't thank him for it. But what's fascinating in chapter 9 is they establish a holiday. I don't know what it is about mankind, but we love holidays. We love to celebrate. So they come up with a holiday. And it's called Days of Feasting and Gladness, Days for Sending Gifts of Food to One Another and Gifts to the Poor. Isn't it amazing how we'll take this amazing event that God accomplished and we turn it inward? Hey, Let's have a celebration, and we'll do it every year, and let's give gifts to one another. Why am I giving you a gift? What did you do? Why am I getting a gift? What did I do? See, they don't say, let's go give gifts to God. Let's offer sacrifices out of thanksgiving to God. What are they? Let's give gifts to one another. Oh, and let's give some to the poor. Let's, let's, let's give, give to the poor. So then we feel better about ourselves. That's like when at Christmas when you overwhelm yourself with gifts and then you feel guilty and so you give a little bit of something to the poor and the needy. That's kind of what I see here. And it should sound vaguely, if not blatantly familiar to you and I. See, God's deliverance became cause for a party. Every year we celebrate Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, the baby was born in a manger. Well, Okay, why was the baby born in a manger? So the baby could grow up to be a man and die on a cross to deliver you from your sins. It's a celebration of deliverance. Same reason we celebrate Easter. Why do we celebrate Easter? Because the Easter bunny comes. No, it's because Jesus came. And he died on a cross and he rose again and he ascended on high and he's going to come again. And that's why we celebrate Easter. But what have we done with both of those holidays? We've turned them inward. We've made them about us. And we leave often, even as Christians, we leave God out. And they took the gift of God's salvation and they turned it into gift giving. 
Let's give each other gifts. And I'm not telling you not to give each other gifts at Christmas, but when gift giving becomes the whole goal of Christmas, we've lost sight of the reality of what it's all about. And I think that's exactly what happened here. The characters within the story took precedence. Esther, Mordecai, they became more important than God himself. And the acts of God just kind of get pushed to the side. And I, I, I challenge you, go, go just Google Purim and look at what comes up. Now, go look at Jewish sites. Don't look at Christian sites and our interpretation of Purim. Go look at Jewish sites, not Messianic Jewish sites, those who have accepted Christ, but Jewish sites and see what they say about Purim. And it's pretty fascinating. This is what, part of what I found. There is a spirit of revelry and fun on Purim that is unparalleled on the Jewish calendar. If there were ever a day to let loose and just be Jewish, this is it. This is how Jews describe Purim today. It's also customary for children and adults if they desire to dress up in costumes. Has something been left out? Yeah, I would think so. How about this? A traditional Purim food is hamantashen, or haman, three-cornered pastries bursting with poppy seeds and another sweet filling. On this site, nowhere is God mentioned. Esther's mentioned, Mordecai's mentioned, but God is not mentioned. Think about Christmas in your home. Think about all the gift giving. Think about all the celebrations, the food, your favorite meal for Christmas and everything you do about Christmas. If, if I were to interview your children, your grandchildren, hey, describe Christmas in your home, what would they tell me? Well, we have a really big tree and we have, my dad puts up all these lights. Well, he doesn't do it, but he hires somebody to do it. And we put up all these lights and it's really great. And then we, you know, my mom makes this really cool meal. And my favorite, this is this. And, and we all get gifts and it's great and it's fun and it's wonderful. And we get to see all our cousins. And would they ever mention Jesus? Would they ever mention that it's all about Jesus? Would they ever mention the celebration about Jesus in the midst of all that? See, we can, we can slam the Israelites, but I think this story is here for us. And there's so much we can learn. Main thing is God's never missing in action. He's never AWOL. He is there. He's here right now, right beside you, right beside me. And here's what never changes about God. He cares a whole lot about his reputation. And if you won't uphold his reputation, guess what? He will. He'll do what he has to do to protect his name. And he cares deeply about you because you bear his name. Why did he save the people of Israel? Because they bore his name. They were the people of God. And even the Persians knew they were the people of God, the people of Yahweh. And God, like for them and for us, he's made promises and he's going to keep his promises. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And I love that passage in Jeremiah. He has plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Here's what you got to get through your head, and I have to get through my head. The plans that God has for you has little to do with this earth. You know, I want all the plans for good and not for disaster to be here. But see, there's a future that we got to keep our eyes on. God's good. God's gracious. He blesses us in this life. But his greatest blessings are yet to come. 
And that's where the plans for good and not for disaster come about. So here's your questions for this morning. Discuss the kinds of things that happen in your life that tend to make you think God is missing in action. What does it take in your life, and it's going to be different for every guy, to make you think, good grief, where has God gone? Could be financial, could be relational. Why do you think that's the assumption we always make? As soon as something goes south in your life, as soon as you get a a bad report from the doctor or your bank account tells you you're overdrafted, why do you think God's left you? Why is that your first go-to? How about this? The Jews tended to give Mordecai and Esther credit for their salvation. What are some of the ways we tend to take credit for those providential things God has done in our lives? In other words, something happens, reversal of fortune, things turn, and either you take credit for it or you give the credit to somebody else, but you don't give credit to God. Then finally, how have we taken Easter and Christmas and turned them into holidays that celebrate one another more than we do the salvation of God? And here's a second little add to that. How could we reverse that? How could could we change those holidays to be what they were intended to be? Celebrations of God and his goodness. Father, I pray for the men this morning as they talk around the tables that you would bless this time, that you would use this time in their lives. I pray for a spirit of honesty, openness, transparency, uh, graciousness, kindness to one another. Uh, And Lord, I pray that we would um, walk out today with a desire to realize more and more that you're here. You're in our midst. You love us. You care about us because we bear your name. And you care about your glory. You care about your reputation. May we care about your reputation as much as you do. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun.